0: welcome to with purpose the podcast for people working investing and giving with real purpose my name is david knowles and i hope you enjoy this episode my guest today is natalie eggleton who for the last five years has been the ceo of the foundation for rural and regional renewal The foundation provides philanthropic support to rural and regional communities and helps to build strong links between those communities and the rest of australia so suffice to say Natalie's work is chock full of purpose and I hope you enjoy hearing what she has to say. Welcome Natalie, how are you?
1: I'm good, good to be here.
0: Lovely to have you here. Um, we're going to kick kick off with your role, FRRR. You've been the CEO for five years, but there may be people who are listening to this episode who aren't familiar with FRRR and its work. What, what can you tell us about the organisation and what it's up to?
1: So FRRR is the only national foundation that is dedicated to um, strengthening the vitality of remote, rural and regional communities. We're national in our footprint and we really work as a a partnership mechanism and a leverage mechanism. Um, So our model of philanthropy is one of um, collective, um, I guess, collective goodwill. Um, So we harness the um, capital from government, philanthropy, business and communities. And we harness that capital and distribute that out through um, both grants um, and capacity building support. And we also um, play an important role in, I guess, leveraging um, and and really targeting philanthropic capital to key needs. And um, FRRR has a unique tax status um, as a DGR1 entity that can enable giving um, to both places and organisations that are not easily reached by mainstream philanthropy. Um, And we also work to, I guess generate insights from some of the smallest and more remote parts of Australia um, to inform philanthropy and giving and to inform policy making. And I guess that the really interesting thing is because FRI has a national scale, um, but we really work at the fine grain of communities and we always have from the very early days. Um, and that's probably Sylvia Admonds's um, legacy. You know, she really set up our small granting work. Um, but we we get right into the fabric of communities and we work across that fabric. Um, and that's been a really unique part of RRR's model that we've always worked at that very fine grain level, but it's at big picture. And so we've got scale.
0: I had made some notes preparing for today around local solutions, local leadership, local leaders, partly because I read an article you'd written, uh, I think it was last year, where you again pointed to the fact that this, this is something that we can't lose, that we need local solutions and we need local leadership. My question is, how does FRR? How do you and your job every day? How do you make sure that um, you're, if you're engaged in that and you philosophically believe that, that's how it needs to work to work well on the ground. How do you, how do you then reconcile that against being an, a national organisation funded by, you know, traditionally big money and big, you know, big government, um, and and being able to have that helicopter view? But obviously, that's where the magic lies. But how do you do it?
1: It's a golden question, isn't it? <laughs> um, it look, there, there is a bit of um, magic in it, but essentially, um, as you've said, because we that's our philosophy, that's our starting place always, um, and it filters through everything. So the way that we, um, you know, tailor and target our granting programs, they're very much pitched at a particular type of organisation. They're at that grassroots level Um, And our perspective is we're interested in supporting and partnering with organisations that are in and of local communities. Um, But we also look for a whole range of indicators and profiles, which include, um, you know, how connected organisations are to each other. um, What, I mean, it's essentially social capital theory. It's about, you know, what their um, bonding capital is within their community. So how connected is that community? What are the organisations and the not-for-profits doing together and separately? Um, you know, what's the bridging capital, what are they actually doing to extend networks outside of their communities and bring knowledge and capability in from other places. Um, and through that, you know, we we sort of get a really solid picture of what that sort of fine-grained fabric story is in a community. Um, mm. And at the same time, because we're looking at aggregate data a lot of the time, you know, we're looking at maybe two to 3,000 funding requests per year coming in from across the yeah. country. So it gives you quite a a macro perspective as well and you couple that with all of the other you know policy um, papers and um, you know all of the other sort of networking that we do Um, you you can actually get to that level of understanding the levers to pull at that grassroots level which will actually have a flow on effect um, at more of a macro level but underlying that um, it's about our people
0: but how do you end up in a role like this why do you think you've ended up working in a role like this natalie
1: Um, And so I kind of went into the not-for-profit sector and thought I can probably, you know, get some traction on some things in this sector and I can probably utilise my marketing and PR skills as well. Um, And so I kind of um, ended up in fundraising in a really small not-for-profit organisation doing all of their marketing and fundraising. Um, And uh, in another full circle, I think one of my first successful grants that I ever got was from RRRR. Um, no. through a small no. grants program they were running. So, you know, there's, there's a photo of me with our founding chairman when I was, I don't know, in my 20s, um, it's a long time ago. Well, oh, you've got a <laughs> happy history in the there. Files. Um, I know. So, you know, that was, a um, again, in a rural setting and it was really about um, marketing and development and, and being in that sort of coalface of trying to, to sustain a small not-for-profit organisation that had a rural focus. Um, And from there, I went into, I I really actually developed a really strong interest in not-for-profits generally and how they sustain themselves, what makes a viable not-for-profit, how you actually get good strategy, good operations, um, and ultimately, obviously, achieve good impact. Um, And so I I went into a a consultancy organisation and and worked with them for a few years in really focusing on small to medium-sized not-for-profits. And again, typically, I just tended to end up with the rural clients. Um, mm. We had a, a pretty strong um, strong group of remote-based organisations as clients, um, but also a number in Victoria of rural-based um, clients. Um, and through that, really, really just um, started to understand, you know, the, the particular challenges of those sorts of not-for-profits and um, the particular, um, you know, business model challenges of actually making these things work um, in an mm. environment where the numbers don't always mm. stack up. Um, and then I made the move to the country. So that was kind of um, a bit of a, a milestone where we decided to take the leap out of the city and move to the country with our um, very young children. And a role with RRR came up and it actually just narrated that, you know how do you actually support the, the, the not-for-profit sector? How do you, you know, use um, philanthropy as a tool that can really strengthen that sector? Um, but equally, it obviously had a rural focus and I stepped into a role that was focused on natural disaster recovery, which um, mm. was something that I, I mean, I lived in one of, right near one of the fire-affected areas after 2009, so I was very familiar um, with the context um, and I was really interested in how philanthropy could be used to support recovery. It sounds like the, the philanthropy,
0: but the the rural and regional, it almost feels like a gravitational pull for you. There's no, you know, escape in it. Um, yeah. what, something you said that was... Interesting, I'm kind of almost leading the witness here. Um, something you said a few minutes ago, Natalie, was that um, you were talking about the speed of, of decisions and that you were impatient. And uh, so you wanted to, to then move into the sector, which is interesting because, as you would know, many people think and call, characterize the nonprofit sector as being very slow and not necessarily dynamic or innovative. Um, but um, but what it, what's your experience of it? I, I should add the other the other thing is that often that view is is made from people who work in the corporate sector. Uh, what what do you say to that that view of the, the non profit sector in Australia?
1: Um, well, firstly, as we know, the non profit sector is very diverse anyway, so it can't you know there probably are sections of it that might move slower. Um, but I'd also say, having worked in a number of other areas, it's faster, <laughs> generally. <laughs> That's what um, I was hoping you were going to say. The not, yeah, the not-for-profit sector has to be super responsive, agile. Things change in the operating environment very quickly. Um, you often and um, unfortunately and I think unreasonably working with depleted resources mm-hmm. and with workforce, um, you know, capacity constraints in some of the most difficult and complex environments. I think there's just a real need to develop a far more mature and nuanced understanding of what it is that not-for-profit organisations do and that they are different. There are some not-for-profits that have businesses and business models that are incredibly resource intensive and as they should be. If you are providing counselling services to newly arrived migrants, that is deeply complex work and that needs time and it needs the right people. You can't do that on the cheap. or, you know, I could reel off any number Um, If you're, you know, a grassroots volunteer group that's, I don't know, doing fundraising for your local hall, that's different. You know, it's a different proposition. Um, But we need to understand that it isn't all the same and you need different business models for different types of services. And some of those are very expensive and they should be. And often they're picking up work that has traditionally been done in the realm of government or, you know, public Funds. And so, you know, there, there's got to be some some genuine questions and conversations about, well, if we want the charity sector to take up this work, you know, what does it cost, and we need to be comfortable with that.
0: There's a whole episode in that question, isn't there? Uh, so we'll, we'll we'll make sure that we don't take up the whole of this episode on that question. But I did I did want to ask you uh, for your for your views on it. Tell us tell us, in in this very general sense. Um, what's what the state of rural and regional Australia is at that that very high level and then after that look to, to talk to you a little bit more about um what you would like Australians to understand more about rural and rural regional Australia after five years in the CEO chair um you've come to appreciate.
1: Mm. <laughs> The, I guess the state of rural Australia, um, again, similar to my previous answer about the not-for-profit sector, is that it's very diverse. And sometimes there's a, um, a perception of, a you know, one story yeah. uh, in rural communities. And, in fact, there are some parts of regional Australia that are absolutely thriving. You know, coastal, high amenity areas, regional centres, they're kicking goals. They're hubs of innovation, enterprise. There's huge diversity um, in terms of economic diversity, micro-enterprises kicking off, um, you know, really interesting stuff going on in terms of tech, um, ag tech, super, super interesting and very exciting and should be talked about more. That will come to your second question. Mm. Um, but we also um, we also know that some of the um, smaller and more remote areas, so the further inland you go, um, there's, there's a lot of... Structural disadvantage, um, which occurs, and it's you have smaller population numbers, you have um, longer distances to get to services, um, you have core barriers including um, you know digital connectivity, digital literacy, those things, which I feel a bit clichéd even talking about, but it's real, yeah, um, and it is actually you know it it can put people behind. Um, the other thing is that. Um, you know, the economic landscape has shifted and continues to shift and it it is so dependent on um, you know both climatic factors but also um, broader um, policy and macro conditions if we think about our trade relations for example critical you know creating a huge amount of concern at the moment in a number of areas um, for our export markets for example so the you know the the buoyancy um, of those smaller communities is so dependent on factors that are so outside of their control. And so what we've seen from RRR's um, lens and many others is that there's just been successive um, pressure. You know, the pressure just builds and there's no Mm. let up. So Mm. you go from drought to fire to COVID to trade issues to, um, you know, and then you'll have a bumper crop in there in some farming communities and, you know, all of a sudden you're back on if you can get Mm. that on the road. So it's, um, and underneath all of that um, is the need um, for, and this is such an overused word, but it is kind of what it is, is for really robust resilience within those communities, both at the social and economic level. Um, And that's, I guess, what gets us out of bed. It's what inspires us and what's, it's what, um, you know, keeps us really motivated and focused is that the communities that are really able to harness their capital, Um, in all its forms within their communities, um, ride through those particular um, cycles Mm -hmm. um, with, you know, greater ability to flex, greater ability to keep bringing in um, fresh ideas and, you know, fresh opportunities.
0: On the resilience front, though, I can't help thinking that there's probably a lot more for people. Say, you know, I'm I'm in Sydney today, for people in the city to learn about um, resilience from people. In rural and regional Australia, and how how we get that message out, it usually comes out in just short stories, feel good stories, you know, about a, a, a tough old farmer or something like that. But how, what have you learnt about resilience from um, the people that you've worked with in the communities you've worked with?
1: Yeah, well, I think the um, a, a challenge is that we only talk about resilience when times are really tough, and that's when we want to see it, and that's when we want to know, demonstrate it and, um, you know, strengthen it. Um, But in fact, um, resilience is all of the before and in the middle stuff. It's the stuff that, and it's it's only, you know, when you come into a crisis or a difficult time that you kind of notice it as a, you know, not that it's a necessarily a definable thing. um, But it, it, you know, from our perspective, what we what we can learn is that all the day-to-day things that rural communities do to keep themselves going is actually about resilience. And that means when things get tough, they're they're already kind of there. Um, It's not like something you switch on. It's already there. Um, So if we think about self-reliance is a key thing in rural communities, Um, you know, no one's going to come and fix the whatever, Mm -hmm. the generator or the, um, you know, it's it's themselves they've got to call Mm them on. So that's how things get done and it's quick and it's efficient and you you get to know, therefore, who is who in the town or in the region. Um, So self-reliance is a huge part of it. Um, Connectedness, you know, again, critical element um, and indicator of resilience is about connectedness, knowing people um, both within your immediate but also your extended network, um, you know, knowing how does, you know, who needs support or who might just be needing a bit of a check-in occasionally. And that's when your community groups and not-for-profits also become so critical. Um, it's your sporting group, sporting groups, your arts groups, your men's sheds, all of those, which are really about that sort of connectedness and, and making sure everyone's looked after. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, those things, they're just there all the time. And I think through COVID, we've learned a lot about that, um, you know, in all of our environments, because we haven't, we've had to rely on our, our sort of inner circle, literally in Victoria, within your 5K radius at some point. Um, So, and, you know, rely on digital connectivity, obviously, but people have actually started to understand and get to know people who live in their street and they didn't before. And that's the stuff that builds resilience because that's when you know you feel safer, you feel more connected, you feel like people know who you are, um, you start to develop Mm. a a greater sense of identity and place and connection, um, and those things
0: all, all work towards that resilience. But obviously you, you mentioned just then that connectedness is really key to resilience. Um and connectedness has been challenged very much this year with COVID, hasn't it? Um you've partly answered it um in so how people have responded, they've taken it upon themselves to come out and get to know people that maybe they wouldn't have spoken to or, or connected to previously. But in this very broad sense of rural and regional Australia, which but like the nonprofit sector is really not, you know, one uh one concept. It's many communities facing many different issues. What could you say though to us about how COVID in a very general sense has affected rural and regional communities and how have they responded?
1: Um I would say that uh, on the lighter side, um, I've been hearing a lot of rural communities saying, well, this is just normal for us because Normally this is how we have to operate and that's, you know, we can't just pop into the office to do our work out, you know. It takes us three hours to get somewhere so, you know. Welcome to our world almost. Welcome to this, yeah. And it's, you know, there was a a really lovely kind of moment where there was a lot of empathy um, and connection between rural and and urban. It's like, oh, okay, you know, it's this is what it's like. And all the, you know, the freezing screens and the, um, you know, digital kind of (laughs) connection issues and, um, you know, there's, That's just what it's like in most most of rural Australia, remote Australia. Um, But having said that, the thing, I mean, this is completely anecdotal from our observations and from conversations I have been having. Um, The biggest challenge has actually been the economic shutdown and the the restrictions on travel because um, there's been very little COVID transmission in rural Australia, very little, and huge numbers of places that have had none. Yet they've had to shut down in the same way that everyone else has. And so the and on you know economies that are marginal anyway and that are so vulnerable to um you know shocks and stresses um that shut down, particularly in areas that have were affected by fires and whose um whose base tourism season was wiped out anyway because they lost Christmas and then Easter. Um, but then also other areas um for you know, agricultural areas, for example, where they couldn't get workers and they were harvesting and you know, because of the travel restrictions. And that, those things were all addressed really well um, in the end, but um, that, that was where the biggest impact was. And there was also a lot of, um, I think, apprehension and anxiety about um, how to protect their communities from COVID. So in some of those places, if COVID had gotten in there, it would be completely devastating. Healthcare mm. systems can cannot cope in rural communities. You're lucky to have a GP. Um, if you've got a hospital, you know they don't have capacity to deal with a pandemic. Mm. Um, you know, unless you're in a regional centre. You know, like here in Bendigo, we've got an amazing new hospital. Um, it had a pandemic ward set up. It was all right to go, but the smaller areas don't necessarily have that. So there was a lot of anxiety about how to actually protect those communities. So when things started opening up in the first um, sort of after the first wave. Um, there was a lot of anxiety in, in the towns that we were talking to about, okay, we've just got people coming in from everywhere. We don't know where they've come from. We don't know how to yeah. um, protect ourselves. Masks weren't, you know, in, well, in Victoria, masks have been mandatory for a long time. But, um, you know, you think about older populations, you've got vulnerable people. Um, our Indigenous communities, you know, did amazing um, work in really leading their own terms. Um, mm-hmm. But that was really concerning as well for some of our particularly our remote communities and, um, So that's generally been the sentiment. It's been less about um, health impact, more about the sort of economic impact and um, social impact. And particularly, I think isolation when there was lockdown of people who um, weren't able to access the things that they would have ordinarily. um,
0: So so again, in that context, philanthropy can become very important, can't it? The ability to mobilise capital and other resources uh, in a very altruistic way and feed support into a community so how how do you see the role and value of philanthropy in the in the and the rural and regional context
1: um i think the uh, this principle probably uh, applies to any environment i think what COVID has done is taught us how to fund well to a degree you know i think we've let go of some of the conceptual frames here comes my digger in <laughs> you know, ah. my excavator outside.
0: We have a it's digger. Don't worry, we've had cats and all sorts joining the podcast, so diggers very welcome.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, the so what we did at FRR around COVID was say, we will just continue doing what we do. We will, but we will just know that things are likely to change. So we'll provide the funding for what is being asked for, appreciating that. There are so many unknowns that it may likely become something quite different and we just asked our community groups to let us know um, if and when that changed, we gave everybody blanket extensions and said just don't worry about any reporting for some time. And that's the kind of agility that I think philanthropy can have, which was great to see sector wide pretty much that kind of adoption. Um, And I guess what we, you know, we didn't set up a separate fund or anything we just kept on doing all of our granting which was, you know, a lot of activity anyway um you know we're pretty much always funding um but that that kind of flexibility to and every time an applicant called us and said well we were planning an event but with these restrictions we've got no idea if we can run an event we said we're just going to give you the money and you work it out and you come back to us and tell us if it is an event if it's something else just tell us and we can make sure it's charitable and it meets our you know criteria um but otherwise you just let us know um and in one of those examples, um, they were going about to run their inaugural arts event in their town, and they had to basically turn it into an online event. Um, and in that case, they ended up attracting, I think they were aiming for 1,000 people at the main event, and they got 55,000 through their virtual event. So it was actually a better outcome for them. How on anyway. earth did they
0: manage that? How, how on earth did they manage that? Oh. Yeah?
1: They'd never done it before. They just kind of all got together and, you know, found someone who knew how to use Zoom and someone who knew how to do this and that, and they just put it together and it was beautiful. You could go in and see orchestra performances and um, virtual galleries. It was just stunning. Uh, And now they're they're going to keep it going that way. So diverging a bit with that example, but I think that's, you know, that's what philanthropy can do. And that's the beauty of philanthropy is is the way that we can just listen. You know, respond, and that money should be freed, freed up. You know, from too many strings. and government can't do that necessarily.
0: You no, know, you 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 just said um, listen and respond. There's one other element. I'm pretty confident you'll agree with this. That's embedded in that approach, and that's trust. So you're listening, and then you respond. But in, in in between those two points, there's a real element of trust, isn't there? And I think that this is my own personal observation. Invite you to respond that's so important you can have process and all the checks and balances and you can uh, you can approach things in a very st- strategic manner in a very thorough manner but at some point you're trusting people to do things and do them well and do them for the right reasons uh, I assume that that that's something that's um, very much at the heart of all of your work because essentially you deal with communities and uh, communities working together without trust I just can't see how it would work.
1: Oh, uh, you're spot on, and I think that's what's been beautiful in um, the philanthropic sector's response to COVID. Um, I, I, you know, we've gone through a, I think, as a sector, um, you know, a cycle of wanting to be, um, you know, far more close to the closer to the impact. You know, the sort of theories of change and the, you know, highly engineered granting, um, which has its place. But at the same time, I think what we've had to do through this COVID process is is actually say act the not-for-profit organisations are the ones dealing with this. We are a partner and an ally and we must trust them. Mm. And because we can't this we need to work fast, we need to be responsive and we know things are going to change, we've actually just got to trust that they know. And that's fun, it is absolutely fundamental to FR's practice and philosophy, partly because A, we're working at scale, um, B, we're working at a fine grain in the communities and so we can't be in all of them. And C, because fundamentally, you can't argue with the fact that the people who are in and of those communities actually know that context. There is no way that an outside organisation or funder, unless you're a community foundation within your community, that's slightly different. Um, But trust is the only way. And that's the only way you actually get genuine partnerships. And you can have genuine dialogue as well, is that. know we're not interested in micromanaging what's going on there we're interested in finding the right people the right organizations with the right ideas and you know we've got some maturity and some experience in how to read that stuff um and how to find those Um, but we also have a pretty healthy risk appetite in knowing that there's a bunch of stuff going on in that context that we don't know about but we know if the right people have got the money they will
0: yeah in terms of people who might think about supporting FRRR, although cases, as I say, that you're really not supporting FRRR, you're supporting the communities that triple is there to support, but for people who are thinking about rural and regional Australia and providing support, um, if you excuse me for one second, I'll tell a quick story. Philanthropy Australia recently asked me to reflect on why um, philanthropy matters, and, and when I sat down to think about it, the answer I came up with for myself was um, that philanthropy is about belief. It's the belief that the uh, think about this in a rural or regional context It's that your community matters it's the belief that the environment or the animals in that environment matter it's the belief that um, you are not alone uh, and there are people who are who are out there who care which i imagine can be an issue for people in remote communities um, but that belief's really important isn't it so i'm kind of inviting you in a roundabout way to to give me your own thought on that and what that belief does at the local community level, not so much with even the non-profit, although of course that's included, but with the people who ultimately receive the benefit of that philanthropy, I think it's good for for people considering to give, to understand what a difference it can make. Just invite you to make any comments on that that you like.
1: Yeah, it is, you know, we receive a lot of feedback and we we seek out and have a lot of conversations with communities, um, you know, to obviously inform our work. And one of the things that we hear most frequently, and consistency, is that um, they feel heard and seen. And often, in fact, they feel invisible in the country because they're tiny, um, they're not known, uh, and they don't have visibility, and they don't have a voice. And so FRRR helps to amplify their voice and helps them to feel seen and heard, which is pretty powerful and always, you know, uh, makes me take a bit of a breath. but you're spot on in the belief. Um, So people, that that whole concept of trusting that they know what is right in an environment where they've probably had a lot of stuff done to them, you know, they get policies loaded on them, they get programs delivered that they've had no say in, um, that don't Mm -hmm. work in their context, all of these things that are, you know, unintended um, but not helpful um, consequences. And so the feedback we frequently get is, you know, you believe in us, you trust us, You know that we've got our solutions um, and you see and hear us. And that actually gives them confidence. And confidence is the thing that drives momentum. You know, that's when you start actually getting, you know, things start to spark off each other and they feel like someone's actually gone, yeah, you've got a good idea. I'm going to back you. And that is, you know, if someone does that to you, you know, if you've ever had someone in your career or your life that's done that for you, you know what it does for you. It makes you feel special. It makes you feel like you can do it. And that's incredible for a community that is you know, struggling potentially or that is just sort of trying to grapple with how to take the next step and how to take the next leap in its development. Um, having, having someone back you like that is phenomenal.
0: Well, on that, you just reminded me, of, I again, just preparing to chat to you today, uh, I read something about your relationship with and inaugural chair, who was also the National Party leader uh, at one time in Sinclair. And it sounded like that, that, that relationship, the chair-CEO relationship and how that worked was really important to you being able to do your job. Um, what, what do you remember about that?
1: Uh, I feel very fortunate to have worked with Ian and we are still he's still very involved with RRR as a patron and sits on a number of grants committees so he's um, incredibly passionate and engaged um, and the biggest champion for rural Australia you can imagine just about. Um, Look what I would I just learned so much working with him Um, you know he he A has seen just about everything in terms of rural communities and rural development and has just a a very, very genuine deep empathy. Um, I learned about just, um, uh, how would I say it? Um, There's there's just sort of a a gentle, polite respect, um, and it's about being humble and always remaining, you know, kind of at service. He's got a very deep service mindset. Um, and and that had stuck with me and, and really aided me. It's, you know, you never get ahead of yourself. You just, you know, you, you constantly stay focused on the work and you stay focused on what matters and you cut out all that noise and you just, you know, you listen in and you do the right thing. Mm. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really consistent with my own approach, but working with him just helped me to see somebody who has done that. Um, you know, I've only obviously known him in these later years and i had a a um, very lively political career for a long time. Um, but in, in my experience of working alongside him, that's what I saw. Um, and he was just deeply personable. You know, it's that you really take everybody um, seriously. You, you take everybody on, you know, um, the assumption that they are doing their very best in whatever capacity they can, and you give them the time. Mm. Uh, and I, everybody's, yeah, everybody's equal and worthy.
0: It's a critical relationship that CEO and chair role, isn't it? And I, what struck me was um, when I read about you um, speaking speaking on it, it. What I understood was that humility that came through your comments, um, but also the the need for ongoing dialogue. It's not a remote relationship. It's I think you were talking about weekly phone calls, check ins, and um, Ongoing dialogue and support, and being able to do that in a, in a in a cone of silence where you had a safe place to have conversations, um, I think that 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 seems to be very Im, important in your case. But I think it is more broadly when people look at that chair CEO relationship because it's it is the, probably the critical relationship in any in any nonprofit, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right, and it is that bridge between the board um, and the management, um, and you need to have that relationship working well. Um, and I guess from a CEO perspective, it can be a lonely job. There are so many things you can't talk to anybody else about. Um, you, you've got to, uh, you know, um, be very mindful um, of how you navigate particular situations and it's really it falls to the chairman um, often um, as the person to seek counsel from on some things that you can't necessarily seek counsel from your staff or your executive team or um, your partners. Uh, You you just need to um, have that advice and guidance. And when you're thinking about things that have implications for the organisation, you've got to be able to have the lens of the Um, the board and the governance and the strategic perspective as well as the um, management and operational considerations and and that's where that relationship, you know, I can imagine if it wasn't working well, um, would be really challenging. I've been incredibly fortunate to have, um, you know, now two really effective chairmen um, and I've seen, you know, lots and lots and lots of really great chairs in action with their executives and and you see the difference, I think, in organisational performance um, when that relationship is strong.
0: Sure. It feels like there's an echo here a bit of a thread as well. It, we were earlier things we talked about in the sense that uh, in that relationship and as the role of the chair, um, you need to be able to listen. You need to have the trust and you need to be able to mm-hmm. respond. Those things that we said before, equally true there, aren't they? Yeah. Um, now, I'm going to going to finish with a final question. Um, we are technically in summer. It's about 30 degrees here in Sydney. I know it's 15 degrees and you've got your winter clothes on today. Uh, but we are in summer. we're heading back in um, to or well, we were clearly we we're already in the bushfire season last year it was horrendous. Um, and it, it did affect large parts of the country, of course. How do you how do you th- feel when you reflect on that and what do you think when you look, look ahead?
1: Uh, well, the first is that we I think we need to accept our climate um, conditions mean that we need to be more ready. For the hopefully not the kinds of years kind of year we had last year, but certainly successive severe um, disasters, and particularly thinking about um, what it means for communities where they do have successive and very severe disasters. So, um, if you've had a bushfire followed by a flood, which a number of places had terrible floods after the bushfires, um, and people think great, the fires out, and yes, but what you then have is enormous environmental damage. and, you know, huge issues um, with water, um, you know, waterways and um, sediment flow. And, and it's just, you know, it's like it's a second wave of disaster. And then you think about, um, you know, potentially you get all sorts of issues following that from um, land use management perspectives. And, um, and so I, I guess what I think about going forward is, um, A, we need to obviously, Action, climate change, and really work on um, how we mitigate against the effects of these, you know, climatic conditions. But at a, I guess, a local community level, it is really about, um, you know, having more climate resilient infrastructure, and that's what we saw. You know, a lot of our small towns—they've got really old buildings. They're not climate resilient. They're not ready. They don't have good water infrastructure. Um, you know, we've often got generator power, um, if that. So they're very vulnerable for when a disaster comes. So we've got to really address that and make sure that we actually build back better when we've had disasters. And I think that's um, now common rhetoric. We know that that's part yeah. of the um, the planning, um, but nonetheless, it's you know, it's something that needs to happen not just after a disaster. We need to invest in this stuff all the time. You know, all of our rural towns need better, you know, climate-resilient infrastructure. Can't tell you how many air conditioners and um, solar systems we are requested to fund. You know, there's these yeah. buildings that are safe places. Um, you know, they're used for so many different functions, but they're really not quite fit for our climate environment. So there's that. But there's also investing in our community leadership and capability, and we're doing a fair bit of work in that space. It's hard, it's complex, it's not easy. It takes a long time, and it doesn't. It's not just money. You know, it's a it's a whole range of different types of capital um, and willingness um, from a policy setting perspective as well. So I think as I look forward, you know, it's it's really from our perspective about focusing not on relief and recovery. Um, you know, FRR's role, we're not an ambulance, we're about actually strengthening vitality. We're about, you know, really building social and economic strength and, and environmental strength. Um, and to that end, we've got to work in between those tough tough times so that we can really you know, help those communities to withstand
0: what is the reality. Is, um, we want really, people to stay
1: in those areas.
0: Yeah, sorry, we had slight slight lag on the Zoom. I think that's a great place to end because that's really kind of almost where we we started. You talked about how you don't resilience is not not about saying we need it when there's the, the time of disaster. It needs to be there, and you've got to build it so that when that time comes, you're more able to um, to survive and thrive. And I suppose that is um, really the case for FRR reset in in a different way, isn't it? That what you're doing is building, creating that resilience. So then when there is a time of need, the resilience is already there. And as I'm saying that I'm thinking to myself, the case for FRR in the philanthropic and financial sense is therefore pretty compelling because if you put that money into the community and build that resilience now, you're probably going to save a significant amount of money that you'd otherwise need to spend to, to deal with the issues if you didn't have that resilience in place.
1: Precisely. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: we should end there because that's <laughs> that's that's probably a pretty good point. You said it better than I could have. <laughs> um, well, it's been terrific talking to you, Natalie, and uh, I can only say I hope it warms up down there in in Bendigo. Um, and you get a little bit of, of what we're experiencing here in Sydney today. But I really appreciate your time. And I really appreciate, as I'm sure um, many, many people do, literally all over the country, appreciate the work that you do and the organisation and, and its major supporters do. So congratulations on that.
1: Thanks so much, David. It's really good to talk to you.
0: That's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. For more episodes, go to the podcast page on codecapital.com. You can also see there our other podcast episodes from the How I Did It series. And if you'd like to get some free insights for the charitable and non-profit sector and for the broader investment sector, then um, head over to codercapital.com insights page. Thank you.